This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Uma Naidu is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and a professional chef. She practices nutritional and integrative psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is also known as Harvard's mood food expert. Today, she and I talked about food psychiatry. Uma was able to combine her love for being in the kitchen with a realistic plan to eating well for a healthier lifestyle. We talk about the foods that really can impact your mood, like gluten, for example, and how to instill better eating patterns in our children from the get-go. Her best advice? Start small. Don't overwhelm yourself in the beginning, but engage in the process and work your way slowly and subtly to a healthier lifestyle. If you truly want to make changes, you, you have to engage with the process. And it's not about starting off making a gourmet meal. It's, it's about building towards what you feel you can nourish yourself with and finding your space in the kitchen. Let's get right to my chat with Uma Naidu. Thank you for being here. So I know you are a psychiatrist and a professional chef. So what came first? How did you link the two? Or were they two sort of different pursuits and different passions that sort of found their way together in your work? Or take us through the How did you become you? Well, Elise, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, they sort of happened in tandem, but not expected, not not with any planning, if that makes sense. Yeah. I always baked as, uh, as a kid growing up. My mom taught me how to bake because there were always enough cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, at home, growing up in a very large Indian family. 
And when I got married and moved here to study, I actually did not know how to cook. So it was very much an experience of calling home for recipes and trying to learn, but then developing a real passion for it Mm. unexpectedly. So from becoming something I felt that I wanted to do, it became something I really grew to enjoy. And as I did my psychiatry training, it, it was really something that was very relaxing to be able to do, prepare food, host small dinner parties and invite friends over and practice new recipes. And then I really, it grew to be something I wanted to do more of. And so I took myself to culinary school. I also studied nutrition. And unexpectedly, it kind of came together in a really interesting way where nutritional psychiatry was also starting to be an area of interest. And I realized that I'd always been talking to my patients and my clients about how to feel better through mechanisms other than just medications Mm. and to think about lifestyle changes, what they were eating, what they were doing for movement, were they sleeping enough and appropriate sleep hygiene. And it, 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 it came together unexpectedly, but in a really cool way. So How big of a key is food? Food is so much more than we realize. I'll, I'll quote a really funny story of a colleague I met recently. After many years, we were in school together, I had studied in medical school, and she also pursued psychiatry. <clears throat> and without knowing that I had followed this pathway of nutritional psychiatry, she said, so Ma, what's all this I'm reading in the current journals about psychiatrists telling people to eat their vegetables? Don't we know that already? And I really had to laugh. It was, it was a very innocent remark. And I you know, then shared with her that there's so much more research now about not just eating the right things, clean eating, focusing on more of a Mediterranean-style diet, so including more fruits and vegetables in the appropriate servings, because they actually have been shown to impact mood, Mm. and studies are now proving that. So there's much more of an evidence base than there was before. And so food has become critically important. And is it more adding in things that our diets might be lacking, or is it sort of taking out things that are problematic? What do you think is the bigger lever? I think for the typical American diet, I think it's removing things that are, that are the offenders. And then secondarily paying attention to the more nutrient-dense and more important things to include in our diet. So the things we want to take away are the processed foods, the high-sugar foods, especially foods with added sugar. So one example I give to my patients is, if you, you know, don't, don't go for the glass of orange juice. Eat the actual orange. Mm-hmm. Because if you're purchasing an orange, an orange juice at a store, you really just don't know what goes into it. So the principle of all foods, you know when you, when you prepare it or you know the ingredients when you've, you've been around it. Similarly with things like yogurt, a lot of people have any types of yogurt, either dairy-based or other, other types of yogurt, and they don't often realize the amount of sugar. So another principle that I teach people is all our recipes in this country are written <clears throat> in ounces, yet our food labels aren't grams. Mm. So people don't realize that four grams of sugar is a teaspoon. And just by teaching them that simple fact, they can interpret food labels and cut back on the amount of sugar that they're consuming. So in terms of mental health specifically, what are the, where are they drawing correlations? Is it anxiety or depression or what's the, what, how does food manifest in terms of, or is it actual mental illness? So the, the connection is around how can you feel better through how you eat? Mm -hmm. That, that's how I explain it to people. And the way that I 
sort of teach and, and, and explain it even when I'm working with individuals is that it's not so much of a prescriptive method. Method, You know, we're very used to the idea of going to doctor and getting a medication in the form of a prescription. Food is not at that stage yet, but it is at the point where we can offer really strong guidelines based on the evidence. So if we break it down, certain foods impact mood, you know, things that impact tryptophan, for example. We have often hear the story around Thanksgiving of, oh, you know, tryptophan makes you feel a certain way, it makes you sleepy, it impacts serotonin levels in the brain. The interesting thing about that, and what we've understood through research, is that tryptophan is great, but it actually needs to be paired with a carbohydrate for it to be impacting your mood. Mm. So this is interesting, because as it turns out, Thanksgiving dinner always has mashed potatoes and stuffing, so the carbohydrates are built right in. But the average meal may not have that, so it's an important fact to understand. Similarly, people think that bananas are contained, uh, contain serotonin, so that must be good for your mood. But actually, it doesn't get absorbed from, from a banana that way. So I think it's really understanding what to eat and when, not so much the timing in, in the day that's not what I'm referring to, but it's really how you eat and what you include in your meals. So of the different diet plans that people speak about, I think that the Mediterranean lifestyle diet, and I, I term it that way because it's really not a diet as much as it is giving people guidelines about the things to eat. Mm-hmm. I feel those are much more useful for people to understand. Yeah. And we know that, is it B12 that's that's very much correlated with depression. Absolutely. Vitamin B12 and folate are correlated with depression. And so eating things like, say, leafy greens, spinach, lettuces, which are have more of the green color in them, is how I explain it to people, is so much better for you. So iceberg lettuce, for example, is what I call decorative because there's really not much nutrition. <laughs> it is nutrition. kind of a garnish, but I exactly. do love it. it exactly. It adds great crunch. So what I say is, you know, just add less of it, but add more of the, you know, the arugula and, the, and, and spinach and the kale that adds more bulk to your salad and more of the nutrients that you need. Mm-hmm. So those are, you know, more directly correlated and, and, and including that in a healthy way in your diet is good. And what are the, so besides processed sugar, are there, do you typically want to avoid things that cause inflammation or? Absolutely. Okay. So, so proce- you know, things that with added in high sugars as well as processed foods, which when you look at an ingredient list on packaging, you know, when it has multiple ingredients, you know that you're going down the route of additional stabilizers and things that are not going to be good for your body. Right. These ingredients tend to cause inflammation and inflammation is correlated with multiple diseases, but it also is now really implicated in the development of poor, um, of mood, depression, anxiety, symptoms, and in some instances, poor cognition. So, you know, by targeting anti-inflammatory foods or targeting things that really, or avoiding things that are causing inflammation, you're naturally going to be moving towards a healthier lifestyle Mm -hmm. and diet. Yeah, it's interesting. My husband, when he cut out gluten, I noticed a change. He just seemed less irritable. But Absolutely. I've, I've had that before. That, but he's <laughs> irritable about that irritability <laughs> assertion, but I think it was pronounced. But when you're working with people and trying to help them sort of, I guess, discover baseline, right? Mm-hmm. Like all mm-hmm. things equal mm-hmm. if they're eating well and sleeping mm-hmm. and exercising. Exactly. How do you get them 
there? Do do you do an elimination diet? How do you sort of know what your normal state is? Absolutely. So each person is very much an individual in terms of how they get assessed. So Mm -hmm. in in the way that I work with clients in my clinic is I have to do a baseline assessment of seeing where they're at. And I make sure that they understand that if they need a medication, because there have been people whose lives in my practice have been saved by medication. So we want to preface this by saying that nutritional psychiatry guidelines are for people who are not severely ill and mm-hmm. suicidal, for example, or acutely manic in terms of symptoms of bipolar disorder. But they can be used at certain stages of illness as someone is healing. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes in and they're feeling depressed or they're on medications already and they've gained weight and they're wondering, how can I feel even better while I'm taking medications and doing everything else? It's much more of a holistic and integrated approach. So from sleep, lifestyle, movement, exercise, things like mindfulness is a huge component of this because stress, like inflammation, is, has also been shown to be a huge factor in causing disease and then impacting things like mood and anxiety states. So it, it helps a person for me to understand what they need to do and then build in a program for them. Mm -hmm. So there might be dietary guidelines. It might be simple things. In fact, sometimes the simpler the better because I find that when you give people simple tasks to accomplish, they feel less overwhelmed. It's not that they can't do it and that these things are difficult. It's that you don't want them when they're not feeling good to then feel overwhelmed. Right. So it's simple things like teaching them about the types of things that can mimic anxiety states. So Increased caffeine or caffeine withdrawal can cause anxiety and mimic a panic attack. Nicotine withdrawal from cigarettes can do that. Uh, low blood sugar levels can do that. So, so simple things so that they understand how to approach their day. So really it's, it's taking the individual, finding, doing a full assessment on them, assessing their mood, assessing their anxiety, understanding where they're at in terms of their weight and what they would like to do. Some people just want to feel healthier. They don't necessarily want to lose weight, but often when they make these lifestyle changes, they naturally are reducing the amount of inflammation in their body. They're eating more antioxidants. They're hydrating their bodies better. And there's a simple way in which they gradually lose weight, even if they're not planning to. Interesting. I mean, that doesn't, it obviously doesn't surprise me. It does feel over, I mean, it is so complex. And I feel like we're not that great at understanding complex systems or scenarios. So is there one, so is it just, do you start with the processed food in terms of thing what? To eliminate. Yeah. What delivers the the biggest bang? I find that some of the biggest things are... Now, since you mentioned gluten, let me go to that first. Mm-hmm. If someone is gluten sensitive or they've noticed an actual change, like increased irritability, and they've noticed for some particular reason that they've had to give up bread or gluten or, or pasta or wheat in, in some form for a certain amount of time, that they were feeling better, that's a, that's a huge you know, key sort of a factor that we can build in. But if they just have sensitivities, we can test to see if they feel better without it. And I've definitely had patients who feel better mm-hmm. eating less gluten. But but that's not always the case because there's also the positive impact of carbohydrates, like I mentioned, with the serotonin and the tryptophan regarding tu- the eating of turkey. So I think that it's important to realize there should be a balance. Mm-hmm. So some of the biggest offenders are removing processed foods, cutting back, and understanding where the added sugars come from. For example, there are at the moment 61 other names for sugar on food labels. So when people purchase things, they may not, they may be 
you know, assuming that they're buying something relatively healthy, but it, should, it may actually still contain sugar, and that would be added sugar. So sort of educating them around that, improving hydration, including certain foods and spices into their meals, and then thinking about meal planning. You know, how many calories should they be eating? Are they eating all of the food groups? Are they maybe balancing it up with eating more things that have omega-3s, like, you know, salmon and, and more seafood than actual red meat, because that's high and saturated fats. So cutting back on those, but including more, well, like I said, a Mediterranean-style diet where, where fish is, is something that you should be eating maybe two to three times a week. Do you do a lot of lab testing in your practice or not so much? So we do some baseline lab testing to make sure that someone doesn't have any vitamin deficiencies or other minerals. Checking on B12 is always important. Checking on your folate level if someone is depressed is, is usually key. So I do some baseline testing, but I also work in conjunction with primary care physicians, mm-hmm. um, making sure that my patients are getting the appropriate follow-up that they should be, and then you know collaborating with them around any tests that, I, that they might need. Cooking is so, it's interesting that you obviously naturally gravitate towards it. I grew up in a house where my mom cooked all the time as a great cook, but I had this weird aversion, which I have sort of solved with Mm -hmm. this incredible woman named Jules, who's, her name's the kitchen healer. I know. But she just said one simple thing to me, which was, you need to figure out how to make the kitchen not something you need to do, but a place where you can be. For some That's reason, great. I know, That's isn't that great? Advice. That yeah. is cool. Yeah. And it, it, I don't know, shifted something in me. And now mm-hmm. I'm much more inclined to cook. But mm-hmm. how do you get, how do you coach people to get into the kitchen? I know it's not, I knew how to cook too. But for people who don't know how. So that's, that's a really good question, especially because it can feel like one is taking on too much if you provide them with a manualized treatment yeah. um, and a notebook of, or a book with uh, a file folder with multiple recipes and multiple things. So I really start, I try to meet, meet the individual where they're at. A lot of people come in and they know how to cook, but for some reason they're fearful. They're afraid that if they get in the kitchen, they're going to cook the wrong things, the food won't be tasty, their families won't eat it. So a great example is someone I'm working with currently who has teenage children and a husband who, who, who cooks pretty well. She's not a great cook, but she knows enough, knows her way around the kitchen. So we started really small. We started including things that were half sort of semi-prepared for breakfast. So could she make, could she buy the ingredients for a chia pudding and put it together overnight? Because that was three simple things to literally throw together and then just buy some chopped fresh fruit and add it to that. Could she do that? We looked at for her lunch, could she buy washed greens at a local market or wash them simply at home and toss together a salad and buy, you know, um, a, a healthy roasted chicken at a local market that she knew was was prepared with very few ingredients. Mm-hmm. So knowing the source of the food, just teaching her those simple things. And could she put that together instead of going to the diner across the street, which gave her so-called healthy Greek salad? And while it had the components of all all of the great salad ingredients, it also had about, you know, a quarter cup of very, very creamy salad dressing on it, which wasn't helping her. Right. And then could she package a little granola that, and I say that with quotation marks because it's not a true granola, it's kind of tossing together some walnuts, some almonds, and dark chocolate chips. So a quarter cup of that as a snack kept her going between her business meetings in the morning, or it was in an afternoon afternoon snack, depending on when she felt for that. And then 
adding in a, a piece of fruit at some point as well. So it got her through the day. And then in the evening, you know, could she do what I what we talked about? And we did this in steps. We didn't change everything at once because saying to her she had to figure out five meals for the day or three meals and two snacks was too much. But we built it in gradually. So if she could achieve breakfast, then we moved on to lunch. Mm. Understanding that there might be times when she may have eaten a Girl Scout cookie and felt terrible about it. But the whole thing was how do you get back on track after yeah. that type of thing. And eventually, you know, um, teaching her one uh, one pan meals. So putting something in the oven that's on a small sheet pan because she doesn't have to prepare for her teenagers anymore. They're grown up, they kind of want to eat with their friends or order out. And so it was preparing for herself. And then she said something wonderful a few weeks ago. She said, you know, Dr. Nye, now that I can do this in a small pan, I can make it for the whole family because now I know that it works. And I realized it gave her the confidence to start preparing more for when she wanted to cook for the rest of her family and then they wanted, you know, a meal at home. And so it's really incremental. It's building, it's creating building blocks. And, you know, I've also had people come in and say, well, you know, these, re- these ideas seem very pedestrian. But the interesting thing is that it's really, these are building blocks. And if you, if you truly want to make changes, you, you have to engage with the process. And it's not about starting off making a gourmet meal. It's, it's about building towards what you feel you can nourish yourself with and finding your space in the kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, and where, wherever that may be. It may be just initially heating something up that's partially prepared in, in, a, good, in a good supermarket or good, uh, in, a, in a reliable place, but then taking it to the next level, adding in more nourishing ingredients mm-hmm. so that you can... Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Hold from there. Just one sec. We're taking a quick break. People typically think of Goop as a brand for women, which will always be part of our DNA. But as our growing group of male readers and listeners tell us, a lot of the conversations we're most interested in having at Goop are non-gendered. Or if they are gendered, they seem to be very applicable to men. For a long time, we've been focused on creating spaces for women to be vulnerable and curious, to feel empowered, to ask questions without shame, and to reclaim some autonomy over their health and lives. We clearly have a ways to go in the culture, but it's our hope that as we make strides as women, we can also be a part of carving out some pockets of space for men to have conversations about physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health as well. And if along the way, 
Goop could also serve men as a source of information, a place to find different and new perspectives. Well, we'd really love that. If you're one of our male listeners, thank you. I hope you'll check out our new spinoff podcast series called Goop Fellas, which is hosted by two guys, and that you'll sign up for a monthly newsletter for men, which we've just launched. You can check out some of the content and subscribe at goop.com slash men's. We're excited to hear what you think. And if you're not a dude, but there's a guy in your life who you really love, dad, brother, friend, boyfriend, partner, colleague, husband, I think you know what to do. Forward that URL right along. Goop.com slash M-E-N-S. Okay, break's over. Back to my conversation with Uma. The thing that's been the most helpful for me, which I learned from a nutritionist here in LA, Alyssa Goodman, is to just make soups and bottle them. And just Absolutely. pull the bottle out of the fridge. Absolutely. Because otherwise, despite my best intentions, mm-hmm. I forget or I'm too overwhelmed in the morning getting my kids to school. Good. You brought up family meals. And I look at this with my boys and maybe kids just, they don't obviously have the same stress that we do. They get more sleep. Mm-hmm. My kids are not amazing eaters. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm alone in that. <laughs> They could be worse, but is it just that kids, because they need more, they need more sugar, they need more carbs, they're unfazed by life's challenges that we don't see food dramatically affecting their mood or do we? We we do. So, you know, I'm not not a child psychiatrist, but I know that, I know that certain conditions in certain conditions in child psychiatry, they might look at, could you change out the diet of a child with possible mania or hypomania? Right. So I think when you're talking about just the average kid who's, you know, struggling with their parents on what they want to eat or, 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 or not faced by, I'll have whatever there is, or I'll just eat pizza, you know, what, 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 what comes to mind is, I think that the simpler, if, if the child doesn't have a mental illness, if it's, if it's just kind of adjusting the diet, then I think making sure to include the ingredients mm-hmm. in a fun way is sometimes what I will share with, you know, my patients in terms of the, 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 how they want to feed their kids. Or simple things like, you know, teaching, sometimes working with families who the, the best that they can do financially or otherwise is get fast food. You know, and then teaching them that just making a simple roast chicken is much less expensive than buying five batches of chicken nuggets for the kids on mm-hmm. five days of the week and showing them that difference and showing them the economic savings and that it's not that difficult and they can offer nourishing food with a side salad or side vegetable over many more different days and repurpose the, the roasted chicken in different ways. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's it's getting to that level and figuring it out with people. But I think that People make the association of, of what kids eat and how they feel or how they behave. So this, there is a link there. I think it's just less studied yeah. um, because we, you know, in nutritional psychiatry, we have more, much more, m- many more human studies now, but most of them, to my knowledge, in fact, all of them are in adults right. at this point. It's tough because I have, you know, you want your kids to eat. My kids are little. And so they can sometimes like just completely pull me of course, too. I'd be lying if I didn't say that I make them box macaroni and cheese sometimes and I stand at the stove and eat it myself. Absolutely. I think After everyone the- does that. There's <laughs> always one day of the week or month. That- yeah, the white cheddar. 
my favorite. Exactly. Um, and it's engineered to be that way, so you shouldn't feel bad. I know. It is. It is. It's true. You know, sugar is added to fast food french fries because mm. in testing, it's been shown to be more delicious. We don't taste the sugar. So the cons- you know consumers are just drawn to eating. Why not get the super size of something? Because it is more, you know, it is delicious. Right. So I, I hear what you're saying. And it's, it's a challenge that we all face, including myself. How, I mean, I know sugar is incredibly addictive. When you, when people try to get off of some of these foods, are there withdrawal? Like, do they have withdrawals? They do. I work, have worked with a few people that have wanted to, I wouldn't say eliminate sugar, but at least cut back. Uh, because again, coming back to the coming back to nutrition components, there are certain building blocks our bodies need. But it's how much do we need? And we can certainly cut back on the processed and added sugar. So they, they we do it gradually. So you know it's it's slow and steady because if not, the withdrawal symptoms can mimic anxiety, can mimic panic. They can feel severely depressed, very fatigued, very irritable. So it can almost mask everything else that might be going on. But when you look for the facts of what's going on, they might actually suddenly reduce the amount of sugar they're eating Mm. too dramatically. So so it's almost, think about it like if you've ever had to work with a doctor and tapering a medication that you were taking for a very long time. It's a similar thing. You have to taper it down. Think about, think carefully about what you're eating, when you're eating it, and then slowly come off it so that your body can adjust and that your body sort of doesn't go into a craving mode. Right, and, and you can you, feel assi- you can retrain your taste buds too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I used to drink so much Diet Coke and aspartame. Absolutely. Things and my coffee, and now I can't imagine. Uh, when you when you do give it up over time, you yeah. can't imagine. In fact, you'd put it back in by mistake one day and taste it, and you were like, "I, I can't drink this." You know? Yeah, it's amazing how you taste. I can about. still occasionally drink a Diet Coke. But it requires a certain mood. But I, I can't. I can't have sweetened coffee, which I'm. Uh, there was certainly a time when I could pretty much eat straight sugar cubes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and are there differences? Do you find between the sexes? Do you find women or men are more sensitive or more inclined to be affected by what they're eating? I think I've had. I don't know from from the clients that I treat that there's that much difference. It's really, I, I find that my practice is more women mm-hmm. than men. But there's certainly some men who are very concerned about sort of their, are they eating healthy and wanting to adjust their diets. And I've certainly had some of them in my practice. I think the goals are sometimes different. I think women want to feel better and look better. And mm-hmm. I think with men, it's not that they don't want to look better, but they're really looking for a healthy way to live. And that, that has just been my experience in the, um, in the group that I've worked with. And how much of, just to sort of switch gears away from the, how food actually makes you feel, but do you work with a lot of people who use food to numb other things going on in their lives? Absolutely. I think that some, you know, Another aspect of working in nutritional psychiatry is, is in addition to using lifestyle measures, is to also sort of know diagnostically where what someone may be experiencing. So, you know, they, they may have depression with some complexities. They may have anxiety with some complexities. They may be having problems in an older individual with their cognition and their thinking and memory. But where someone is struggling with an actual sort of food addiction or, or food eating to sort of fulfill some sort of emptiness that may be related to emotion, 
one has to really weed out an eating disorder. It's mm-hmm. not always the case. I think it's, like I said, it's really an individual. And find out what, what is the person actually eating. Because people may have gained weight just from the symptom of depression where they're overeating. They could also lose weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lose weight in, in a very dramatic fashion. And that's where blood testing and, and appropriate an appropriate medical workup comes in to be very important because you want to make sure that medically there isn't anything going on. And sometimes the individual could just be severely depressed. So when when f- there's an abnormal eating pattern for whatever reason, the f- one of the first things I want to do is understand the diagnosis and make sure that the person is not doing anything sort of that's disordered eating, you know, mm-hmm. binging and purging, restricting their foods, over-exercising, that type of thing. So once we've excluded that, then we can figure out what, you know, what is, what is the meaning of feeding yourself this way and what is it that you're trying to feel better about, mm-hmm. you know, because remember none of this is just medications or just food like we've spoken about. It's really a holistic approach. So it could be a therapy, could be a form of therapy and figuring out what, what's going on that um, you're sort of feeding something that right. is making you ill, making you gain weight. And yeah. what is that? No, it's so complex. I'm just thinking about in college, I, I think I have seasonal affective disorder. Mm-hmm. And so I had probably a year where I was definitely depressed and I was, I went to see someone and I think they gave me Wellbutrin or something, but mm-hmm. I was also not out of really any disorder. I just lost my appetite. I was eating ice cream essentially, right. exclusively. Absolutely. This, this happens. People <laughs> yeah. just, this is the only thing I can eat because I'm just, you know, that's I what I can not tolerate that interested. And, and not interested, not interested yeah. in food. Yeah. Real I lost for appetite. Yep. Yeah. A long time. Yeah probably at least a semester. And I definitely lost weight. That was not my intention, but... Right. And, just... and and rea- realistically, ice cream was probably sustaining you, providing right. just about enough calories that you were okay. Totally. Yeah. Denali moose tracks, delicious. But yeah, it was a strain and I observed it, but I also was like, eh, whatever. I was, you know, and then I just, I don't know what broke that period, but it definitely, I'm sure I was just feeding it through... Lots of bad habits, and and I think when when people do get into trouble, I'm glad that you came out of that phase. But when people get into trouble, is when those bad habits just become more generalized, and then life becomes, you know, pizza and ice cream, or uh, and and pizzas are delicious. Don't get don't get me wrong; the, the right pizza can be very delicious. But but that becomes sort of all that they eat, and mm-hmm. because either they can't tolerate other food, or they're feeling so poorly that they don't have the energy to prepare something at home or get to the supermarket. So I think that, you know, it's it, it, it's finding what the cause, the root cause is sometimes because it's if it's really a severe depression or something that needs medication treatment, then, then we have to figure out giving or prescribing medication in conjunction with the other measures. Yeah. One doesn't exclude the other. Yeah. I, I From what I recall, the well, that Wellbutrin did nothing. I think I just stopped taking it. I was a terrible patient. But it doesn't it doesn't work for everyone. And some people don't don't like it or they don't like the other options. It is complicated too because you think about foods that are nourishing or that are comfort foods as well. And those are obviously the ones that are probably I don't know how you re engineer your mind to find comfort in a turmeric latte mm-hmm. instead of Denali moose tracks. Mm-hmm. I think that's hard. I think yeah. I think it's absolutely um it, it's tough. It's tough to say, well, let me give up my favorite dessert and my my favorite coffee shop or ice cream shop to, you know, to replace it with this. I think the one of my 
leading principles about food really is that things should be delicious. Mm. And that if you're not making it with the things that obviously make things tasty, like sugar and butter, and, you know, there's always room for great French pastry. I love to bake. And I know I know that these items can be delicious, but, you know, I can't eat them all the time. So how do I make things that are delicious, but c- can I adjust the recipe and can I cut back on something and not compromise the taste? Mm-hmm. You know, people... The other thing is people eat with their eyes first, right? Because we see it first. So if something looks super attractive, you're going to feel like eating it. And so if I, I try to combine how I present the food, but also how I might make a substitution. Like, you know, the, the golden uh, chai lattes, with, with, which have the infused turmeric milk with it, can be super delicious because of all the spices that go into it. And you can actually use other forms of sweetening the, the chai to make it look and feel good. Will it be your ice cream? Probably never going to turn into ice cream. But could it be, you know, could it be something you have at night when you're settling down and you kind of relaxing and as part of sort of, you know, trying to get yourself to sleep? It, it's, it's also the context of, of the food. And in terms of, you know, ice cream, I think that it's tough to just replace replace something like that. For example, if someone really craves and loves a certain ice cream, since you gave me that example, you know, maybe building in small amounts of really tasty fruit with it, and then you slowly cut back on the amount of, or the portion of ice cream. You know, part of it is, are you ready? And are you open to doing that? Because someone else might say, I have to have three scoops. If not, I, I can't eat it. So I think part of it is, are you, are you slowly ready to make that habit change? And that's why it has to be a person who's not coming in judging the type of recipes and calling it out as, oh, you know, I, I know I should eat my vegetables. It's, it's much more than that. It's really deciding that you're going to take this journey for yourself. Like the, the client that came in the other day, and I was incredibly impressed because oh, I, said, I said to her what I say to many people, you could track the amount of food you're eating. You could jot down when you're exercising. But I don't, again, want to overwhelm them. I give them guidelines. Mm-hmm. And she brought in a notebook. She had taken photographs of everything she had eaten in the week prior. She jotted it down. She recorded her exercise. She bought herself a, um, I think it was a pedometer or some, she was using her iPhone to track her steps. But she she really listened to what everything I'd said and she started implementing all of the things together and appeared with something that was, I could see just by how much brighter and happier she was looking that the simple changes she had instituted were making her feel better because she had, was taking account of her own health. Mm. It wasn't in someone else's hands. So she's made slow and steady changes and I think that these are slowly going to lead to healthier habits that she's already incorporating. A simple one was that she she comes from a um, really large ethnic uh, family. She's of Greek, Greek ethnicity and ha- loves having food with her family and her mom's an excellent cook. But when she goes home, she can't stick to the dietary changes that she she's made in her own apartment. And she, she told me the other day that she sat her parents down and said, explained to them that she really just wants to eat differently. And she was going to bring in some of her own food when she came to have meals with them because the fun of sharing the joy of that meal with them was still important, but that she'd be eating less of her mom's, you know, most delicious foods that she enjoyed. But again, that was, that, that was helping her. And the fact that they understood it was very important to her. Yeah. So... And in terms of tracking, because I know how helpful that can be, but is there a point where it becomes 
obsessive or do you think it's a good starting point just because so many of us, myself included, just sort of mm-hmm. mindlessly eat? I think tracking works for people who enjoy sort of enjoy the experience of looking at either their phone or in her case, a notebook and in others, you know, an iPad and and checking things off. I think if you have that sort of mindset where it's helpful for you and it doesn't become an obsession, because if you sing me on a regular basis, we'll be able to tell if it's becoming you know, you're not doing anything else but tracking. It, 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 it's true because people can sort of become almost disordered in trying to function, right? right? So I think it appeals to people who like to create lists of things that they feel they can achieve. And then when they go to bed at night, they feel, you know, I didn't get as many steps in as I, I liked. I can do this tomorrow. And I think that I suggest it to people, but not everyone takes up that, that idea. Mm-hmm. And so I let people decide at a certain point what they'd like to track and when. And when they notice a few weeks in that it's not having a random idea in their head of what they're eating or how, how much of exercise they're doing, they realize for themselves that we don't have a sense of what you're actually doing, even though you're coming in to see me. They, they start to implement things that are helpful to them. Do you find that some clients are under-eating? Yes. Some people are primarily trying to lose weight to be healthier and are severely calorie restricting. And what they don't realize, and sometimes it goes back to just helping them understand more about nutrition in their bodies, they, they're not eating enough to sustain themselves. So what's happening is their body is going into a phase of starvation because if you're giving the body so much less food, in its primal state, it's thinking to itself, I need to protect myself. So it starts actually holding on to the fat right. in the form of glycogen stores and things like that. And they end up not losing the weight. So part of it is teaching them how to create the balance where enough calories of the right foods will actually help them feel better and slowly lead to weight loss. And do you find, I have this lingering question that might be random, but having gone to boarding school and had many friends who had disordered eating, Mm -hmm. do you feel like you can deleteriously affect your metabolism in an ongoing, like do people damage their metabolism through starvation to the point that they can no longer eat normally and maintain a healthy? So people, so so individuals who have severe eating disorders often are damaging their, their metabolic systems in their body is the best way to describe it. So often they require many months, sometimes years of treatment of consistently being coached to eat healthier, to eat regular meals, to not restrict meals in order to gain that healthy sort of metabolism back. And there are people, many people who recover from those states. So it's not terminal, it's not something that you can't reverse. But for the time that they are so severely malnourished, and their metabolism, their electrolytes, their liver, you know, their liver enzymes, everything is so impaired. They really need very acute sometimes, and often need medical hospitalization in order to be stabilized enough to then start a proper eating program that they can tolerate. So in an ideal world for a typical woman, what's chia pudding, some sort of hearty salad, one pan dinner? That's, turmeric latte. I, I love it. <laughs> you know, start start small. Start with where you think you can make a change. If you, uh, firstly, don't skip a meal. 
you know, secondly, do the best you can with what you have out there. If all you have is a cafeteria where you can buy a salad, buy a salad and, you know, try to get a healthy dressing with it, but make sure you have maybe a piece of protein with it. That's, that's healthy, like a piece of salmon that went, went with it. I'm not saying you have to make everything from scratch, but start, start where you feel you can implement change and do the big things first, you know, start to cut back on the sugar that the candy that you're eating at night or the candy that you keep in your car or the candy bowl at work, but, you know, wherever it is, try to cut back on what's really obvious first and slowly and steadily you'll, you'll start to build in the healthier habits. And it's, it's not easy for any one of us. I know. Truer words never spoken. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Uma Naidu. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can learn more about Uma at chefumamd.com. That's U-M-A. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Once you hit perimenopause and the anxiety and changes that come with that, do you ever feel like your old self again? Asking for a friend. Yeah, right, Michelle. I know you're hitting perimenopause, girl. It's nothing to be ashamed of. No, I'm kidding. Well... I think I had to do some really specific things in order to kind of recalibrate when I started perimenopause. So supplementation was really important for me. I had to change my exercise routine a little bit. And I went to see an amazing doctor, Dr. Dominique Reed, who we actually developed our Madam Ovary vitamin protocol with. And she specializes in longevity and so she, she tweaked my, my program, and I'm feeling a lot, lot, lot better. I also think that it's a good opportunity to close your eyes and take an inventory internally and see, you know, what is unresolved. I think a lot of times when we have, when we have that kind of un- anger under the surface and, you know, we, say we blame it on period or hormones – it's coming from somewhere and it's coming from something that's unresolved as well. So really important for us women to chew through our feelings, to really look at them honestly, to really name them, to process them, to get them out, to put them in their place. I, and I do, I do think that's a very, very important piece of getting really comfortable with your body in your late 30s and and 40s and, and, and beyond. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.